0: Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. We are in Acts chapter 27. We are going to finish out Acts chapter 27 today. So, everybody, go ahead and turn there and have your notes ready. And and per usual, Uh, The slideshow, if I'm moving too fast through the slides, uh, those are available to you at kaya.live, and you can grab those and pull those uh, from our website, and that way it's uh, easier for some of you to follow along. Today's message is called Leading Through the Wind. Now, before we get into it, I want to introduce the sermon by first talking about, uh, you know, uh, the army and the military. And as you know, I know a lot about that kind of thing. (laughs) No, I don't. I I don't know much about the army. In fact, uh, I don't. I, I often feel stupid talking about it. Uh, you know, I don't know what rank is what. Hunter, you could help me with this at some point, so I don't sound so ridiculous. Generals and captains and sergeants and I don't know. I don't know what is what. But I do. Uh, some have told me I'm militaristic. Uh, maybe that's just my my intensity. But um, I, I want to. Uh, read something to you just briefly here. Uh, when someone goes through, I learned this through study, that when someone goes through uh, the army rangers training, that there is a creed that they have to memorize. And uh, and it reminded me a lot of what I'm preaching in today's sermon. And uh, the, the rangers are a group of, of soldiers, just army soldiers that go through extra extensive training in combat, uh, and they get this, this ranking of, of ranger. And they're, they're called to, in, in, in training and in, when they take formation, they recite this creed over and over again. And it starts this way. Recognizing that I volunteered as a ranger, fully knowing the hazards of my chosen profession. It's the very first statement that they make, is that when they signed up for this thing, that they knew fully uh, all of the risks that they were taking on. And, and that kind of reminds me of our salvation as well. Is that When we sign up to be believers, there are risks associated with that. We have to remind ourselves that there are risks and challenges unique to being a believer. And if we can't see that in Acts chapter 27, goodness, I mean, we can't see it anywhere, right? But it, further on in the statement, it, it continues on, and it says, Never shall I fail my comrades. I will always keep myself mentally alert physically strong and morally straight, and I will shoulder more than my share of the task, whatever it may be, 100% and then some. Okay, now here's the most potent and compelling statement that resonated with me, and I think it touches on our sermon today. It's this. This is the part of their creed is this. Surrender is not a ranger word. I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. You know, in Kaya, uh, you know, we should be a ministry that parallels this very sentiment. We must recognize that we have a responsibility to serve one another, preferring your brother and sister over yourself. And we are called to encourage and to help and to lead and to go after those that are weak, those that are that are in the fringe, those that are in the darkness, as we sang this morning, that are out there in the in the, the frailty of the world. We are called to go after them because we leave no men behind. That has to be our heartbeat. Now, in Kaya, there are, you know, this is a ministry that I often think of in terms of leaders that are developing leaders in ministry. I sound like I'm in a, in a barrel. We're working on it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I love the energy. Thanks, Sam. I, I know you're on it. Just like a ranger <laughs> on it. Um, but we're a, a ministry of leaders that are training up generations of leaders. That we're always going back and we're training up those who are younger in the faith and we're building them up so that they can prevail as well. And And in that way, I often have, you know, we do a lot of training for leadership. I focus the majority of my time on training leaders to come up in the ministry. And and that's why there's guys like Uriah and and Miles and Alex and Nick and Jorge and Seth and all these guys that are learning and studying the Word of God so that they can teach it and train other people. That's why we have a ministry like that is because we're constantly training new leaders. But the, the question that often comes up in training is, what do I do and what do I say in instances where younger believers are struggling in the darkness and they're in the winds of the world and they're being tossed to and fro? How do I help them? How do I come alongside them? What does it look like me for me to counsel them and build them up in their faith so that they too can prevail in hard times? In fact, this is something that I talk about with leaders every single week, and it's, and it's, and it's tough, These kinds of questions are not always easily answered. I mean, after all, Satan is very creative about the ways that he attacks people. And the winds can look very many different ways. And and people face unique situations that are maybe even in some ways unique to them. And and it is complex and it is difficult to come alongside people. But in today's sermon, we're going to watch as Paul leads a group of men through the trial of their lives a storm, a storm sent to test them. In today's sermon, we're going to learn what it means to lead people through the crisis that they face and through the trials of the winds of their personal lives, okay? So this is a leadership sermon, and in that way, uh, everyone in here who calls himself Christian should recognize that you, in some level, are a leader, and that you're called to the responsibility of seeing people and helping people come through these trials. In your Bible study, even if you think that you're new to the faith, there are people in your Bible study that you are called to lead and to help. Okay? This is a sermon of faith as much as it is a sermon of leadership. Right? So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to be with us as we, as we uh, study Acts chapter 27. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we're grateful. We're grateful for your word. Your word is uh, quick it's powerful, more powerful than any two-edged sword. And it does split us from our flesh. It divides our spirit away from, from the fleshiest parts of us, the most selfish parts of us. And it, and it calls to life the innermost part of who we are, our soul. And Lord, I pray that your word today that it would prevail in just that way, that people would hear a sermon that is catered specifically to them, and not in my preparation, but in the speaking of your spirit to their heart that they would hear a sermon that's fit for them. And Lord, in that way, you would build us up and you'd strengthen us and you'd provoke us to righteousness. You would, you would help us to weather the storms of our life and that we, would, that we would look like Jesus Christ in the way that we act, the way that we behave, and the way that we believe. Lord, would you help us today as we study your word? In Jesus' name, amen. At this point in our story, we've been on the water for days now, tossed to and fro on a boat with Paul, who's a prisoner of Rome. Now remember, they're trying to transport, the Roman soldiers are trying to transport Paul to Rome, and they've been facing some trouble. Uh, after all, it's the fall time, it's coming into winter, and the waves of the ocean, are, are of the sea, of, of the, the Mediterranean Sea, are particularly uh, 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 egregious and difficult in this time of year. And they're having troubles, and so they're trying to find ways to get to Rome that are expedient, uh, but they've run into trouble after trouble. And they just recently left the Fair Havens, which was a safe port, but they decided it wasn't a place that they wanted to be. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't uh, an enjoyable place to stay. So they think that they can get to this, this, uh, this port city called Phoenix. Right? And there they're going to have a little bit better time wintering there and waiting for these winter winds to die down. And so they set sail. And it was a bad idea. Paul warned them that this was a bad idea. And now they've found themselves on the water for many days now uh, facing this trial. The ship is being driven southeast in the direction of Syrtis, which is a dangerous sandbake off the shore of northern Africa. And so you can see that here near Libya. The situation's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. The passengers have given up all hope of surviving and they've taken every precaution. They've dropped the sail. They've thrown out all the excess cargo. Wrapping up the hull. We talked about how they wrap the hull to keep the ship intact as the waves beat it. They've done everything that they know to do and yet their situation still seems hopeless. And that is until Paul reveals an important truth and that is that God... Is his Savior, and he's also their Savior. And it's his will that they would survive this terrible ordeal. Verse 21 says, But after long abstinence, it means, in other, in other words, Paul remained quiet, and he remained in the background as everyone was scurrying about on the deck, trying to make away. way. Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me, and not have loosed from Crete, and have gained this harm and loss, and now I exhort you to be of good cheer." There is good here, okay? There is good cheer to be had. For there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and, and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer. He says it again. For I believe, God, that it shall be even as it was told me. Now Paul continues on here by telling his fellow voyagers what must happen in order for them to be saved. Now he's not very descriptive. This is what he says in verse 26. Howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. Okay? So it's it's pretty nondescript, but what is clear is that they're going to just barely make it. They're just going to barely sur- su- survive this and they're going the, the ship is going to tumble into an island. Before they're actually going to be saved. So everything will be counted loss except for their lives. Now, trusting in this promise from God would prove to be much tougher for these men than it should have been. And that's often the case, isn't it? Hearing the promise and receiving the promise is different than believing the promise. We'll get into that here in a bit. Verse 27. But when the 14th night was come, can you imagine? 14 days of this? I mean, has anybody ever been seasick before? Yeah? Okay, well, have you ever been carsick before? Okay, if you've been carsick, it's likely that you would also get seasick, okay? And you know how terrible that can feel, how nauseating it can be? Imagine that for 14 days, being pummeled about. But when the 14th night was come, as we were driven up and down in Adria, that is the the portion of the Mediterranean that is the, the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the shipmen uh, deemed that they drew near to some country. Okay, so they perceived that they were getting close to the Libyan shore. Okay. And when, they, uh, when they had let down the boat, oh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead, sorry. About midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country and sounded out and found it tw- 20 fathoms. In other words, they, when they, it says that they, they sounded out, it means that they cast down a line in order to, to measure out how deep the water was. Because you know, if you've ever been in a boat, the closer you get to the shoreline, the closer the rocks, the co- closer that they are to danger. So they sounded out, and the water was about 116 feet deep, which was a clue to them that they were getting to a dangerous place, right? That they were rapidly getting to, uh, to, 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 to shorter waters, <clears throat> and when they had gone a little further, they sounded out again, only just a little bit further, and it was ninety-two feet, fifteen fathoms. All right. So very quickly, they see themselves getting closer and closer to this sandbank, this this certus uh, major that they're so afraid of. Then, fearing lest we should have fallen upon the rocks, they cast forth anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. Okay, so in other words, last-ditch effort. We're just going to throw the anchors out and pray that they hold us, but it's just best of luck, and it's likely that we won't survive. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat, okay, so there's a small group of men who were going to sneak over to the—remember they pulled the lifeboat in? Remember in our previous part of the story, they had pulled the lifeboat into the boat so that it wouldn't, it wouldn't be drowned to sea? They pulled it in with the, There's a group of men that are going to let it back down into the waters, and they're going to sneak off. They're trying to make an escape because they don't trust that the ship is going to make it, and they're going to trust themselves to this lifeboat. And so they let it down. They let down the boat into the sea under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship. Now, under color means, uh, is a phrase that means pretext or undercover, like hidden, Okay, so when you read under color, you can think undercover. It's it's hidden. They're trying to sneak away. In verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. So when they were caught in the act of doing this, Paul lets them know, hey, guys, check it out. You can do that. But if you do, if you escape this way and leave the rest of us to the boat, no one will survive. In other words, you're not acting in faith, you're not trusting in the promises of God, and so all of us will die. The consequence will be complete death, you and those of us who remain on the boat. And so with that word, the men believed him, and so the soldiers cut the boat loose and let it go. They believed the words of Paul. Verse 33, And while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that you've tarried and continued fasting, haven't taken nothing, they haven't been eating Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for you health. For there shall not be a hair fall from the head of any of you. I mean, that's quite the promise, right? I mean, especially the older you get, hair is falling out. Never mind, I was going to make a joke, but I won't be mean. Um, and when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he had thus broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. And we were, all, uh, we were in all in the ship, two hundred threescore and sixteen souls. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore into, into which they were minded, if, if it were possible, to thrust in the ship, in other words, drive the ship towards this small creek, this inlet. And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea and loosed the rudder bands. And these aren't, these aren't rubber bands, these are rudder bands, meaning that they were ready to throw the rudder or the, the part of the ship that steers the ship. They threw it back into the water that it might guide the ship into this inlet. And hoist up the mainsail to the wind and made sure. And falling into a place where two seas met, that's two bodies of water where they meet at this inlet, they ran the ship aground, and the forepart stuck and remained unmovable. But the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners. So they, 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 they wreck the ship, just like was told for them to do. The ship is destroyed. And as they're looking to go into, they're, they're still out in the water, they're looking to swim into the shore, what they say to themselves is, hey, it's our best bet if we just kill the prisoners now. And the reason that they do that is because for a Roman soldier to, to, to let a, a, a prisoner go, okay, or a prisoner escape, would have meant certain death for them. All right? and, and really, uh, when a Roman soldier, uh, we, you've, we've talked about this earlier in this, this sermon where, remember, Paul's about this, the, the, the prison door, uh, walls and the doors fall down, and the, the, the prison jailman is afraid that Paul's going to escape. The reason that he's so afraid that Paul's going to escape, he even, he even says he's going to commit suicide. He's going to kill himself. And Paul stopped him. The reason he was so afraid is because in Rome it was common if you let a prisoner escape that they would, they would burn you alive with your own clothes to set the fire. Okay, that's no joke. Nobody wants that. So like, okay, let's just kill the prisoners now and that'll be much better than letting them escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose. In other words, he built rapport with Paul and he trusted Paul and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land. And the rest, some, some on boards, and, and the ones that couldn't swim well, they would, they would float on boards, and some on broken pieces of the ship. So it came to pass that they escaped all safe to the land. Okay, so that's our story, but we want to break it down. There's something that we need to look at, and we've touched on this briefly before, but what I want to point to, out to you again is that for us in this story, the winds of the sea are a picture of Satan's desire to sift us and to bring us into trial that we might lose faith and fall into fear. That's what these winds picture for us. Now, all of us face headwinds, don't Don't we? All of us as believers from time to time will face headwinds as we serve the Lord. We're going to find ourselves in trial. We're going to find ourselves in suffering. We're going to find ourselves in difficult situations with our family with our friends, in discipleship, in Bible study, in church planting. And if you choose to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to face difficulty. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You better just resolve that that's going to be the case now. It's difficult. It's difficult following the Lord. And when you face this difficult, difficulty, Satan's primary objective is to keep you from believing the promises of God. And to think in fleshly terms. Okay, we've got to remember our reality. Is that, that our reality is a spiritual reality, it's not a physical reality. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Satan wants to get us fleshly minded. He wants us to think in terms of, I've got to save my own rear. I've got to do the thing that's going to preserve me. Remember, we talked about self-preservation and how that's our inclination. That when we come to a place of fear, it's, it's always our natural inclination to think in preservation. Save myself. Think selfishly. That's how we tend to think. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, if Satan is successful at getting us to find solutions to our problems in our flesh, then we will find ourselves defeated we will find ourselves defeated. In fact, we will be defeated before we ever set out to achieve any ministry objective whatsoever. Before we ever step foot on the boat, you will have been defeated. If Satan can get you to trust in the strength of your flesh, you're done for. And Satan uses trials just like this one, the trials of our lives, to cause us to fear and to be faithless. And in our story... God has made it plain. God always makes it plain. God has made it plain to the men on this boat that he is going to preserve every single one of them. And yet, and yet, they still struggle to believe. Verse 22 says, For there shall be no loss of any man's life among you. That's a promise from God. They had that promise. They were under that promise. Verse 29, it says, Then fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks. In just a few verses, right, in the space of just a few fathoms of water, they've already given up hope. They've already found themselves fearing. And the men on the boat were proving just how fearful they were. By deciding to try to cast that boat into the water and climb in, verse thirty, and the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship when they had let down the boat into the sea under color as though they had, had uh, would have cast anchors out of the foreship. So not only can they not take their, uh, the promises of God uh, as reality for their lives, they're finding their own escape route. They're 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 going to find their own way. They're going to do it their way. And how often do we face this in our own lives? So often we, f- uh, we are so filled with fear over things that God has already clearly spoken to that we neglect his promise and we begin to trust in ourselves. Okay, so, so God has given you a book here, okay? Now, upon every page of this book are divine promises from beyond this universe. And you are under these promises. This is the spiritual reality. This isn't carnal reality. This is spiritual reality. And you are under it. But see, here's the deal. Fear and faithlessness keeps us from living in this reality. See, it's not good enough just to be under this reality. It's, it's crucial. It's critical that we live in this reality. So it doesn't matter the promises of God for your life if you're not going to trust him for them. You're not any better than these men casting the lifeboat out into the water and trying to make your own way when the promise is that not even a hair will fall from their heads. That's an incredible thought. And you've got beautiful promises written to you about all the ways in which God wants to preserve you and love you and see you through every trial. He's got better things for you. He's got things waiting for you. He has blessings for all those who are willing to obey him at every promise that he gives us, and yet we still struggle. Now, the more pointed question for us today is this, how do we lead people out of their fear and into faith? How do we lead people? The way that we see Paul leading people here, how do we do that? When the winds are blowing all around other people and we see trials in our Bible study and coming into the lives of people and they're afraid and they're they're sad and they're depressed and they're, they're tempted to despair, how do we lead them and guide them in a way that's biblical and appropriate? Let's look at Paul. Let's look at Paul, and let's, let's figure that out for ourselves. Now, now I want to say this to you real quick, is that being able to figure this out and, and, and being able to lead in the midst of crisis is the thing that separates immature leaders, new leaders, young leaders in the faith, and mature leaders. It's, this is the thing that really separates the men from the boys, This is the thing that will expose the true nature of a leader. Key point number one. When the storm rages, when when the winds are blowing, the leader is not tempted to falter. They are bolstered to lead. See, it's, you know, we talked about Noah, didn't we, in the last service? If you were with us in the last service, we, we talked about Noah. And Noah was one man with one family in a world of likely eight to nine billion people. And he was the only one willing to trust God at his very promises. That's an amazing thing because for most of us, for most of us, we go the way of the world. And as leaders, we often can get caught up in other people's crisis. When we see other people fear, we're tempted to fear. When we see other people struggling, we're tempted to struggle And so what I'm saying to you is this. The difference between an immature or a young leader and a mature leader, someone who knows how to lead, is this very thing. That when the crisis hits, they're not tempted to act the way of the world. They're not tempted to also fear. They know that this this is just an opportunity to lead. And that's critical. And in our passage, we're going to see several ways in which Paul exemplifies this kind of leading. By his words and his actions, we're going to see faith drawn out of a bunch of men who are, who are greatly afraid. Verse 31. This is the first thing that Paul does is he warns them. That's what he does. He warns them. Paul said to the centurion, to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Okay, now he leaves it to their own decision making. He doesn't fight with anybody. I mean, I can imagine myself in this situation just like throwing, throwing punches trying to keep those guys from getting on that lifeboat, he didn't use his flesh. He used his words and he warned. He said, listen, guys, if those men are allowed to get in that lifeboat and to to, to cast off, everything will be lost. And I want to warn you right now that the consequences will be great for every one of us. And as we mentioned before, in the midst of, of the chaos, in the midst of the storm, these men who've given up all hope they're, they're going to escape. Paul is not afraid to speak up. And we ought not to be afraid either. So there's a lesson on leadership here for us. And it's this, key point number two. We must be prepared to warn people against faithlessness. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? Warn people against faithlessness. Well, well, first of all, we, we are called as believers to warn unbelievers... Of an of an imminent future reality in hell, we are we are called to warn people that lest they believe in Jesus Christ and put their faith in them, there is no hope of forgiveness. That there's no good act or no good labor that they can do to save them. That is only through the work of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, that they will be saved. That's a warning. And every gospel presentation that you ever give should come with some form of warning. Look, if you continue in this way, there will be a great cost to you. That's critical. Leaders and Christians in general should not be afraid to warn people. But there's another type of warning that takes place in ministry, and that's this. When people in your Bible study or people in Kiah are tempted to go the way of the world, they're, they're looking back. They're like Lot's wife. They're tempted to look back on Sodom. They're, look, they're, they're tempted to look back on, uh, and, and to trust in their flesh. It's our responsibility to warn them that if they go that way, that they're going to not only lose out on the rewards and the blessings of following Jesus Christ... But they're going to face consequences for that because Jesus doesn't permit his children to walk away without chastisement. You know, God is not afraid of putting his kids over his knee. He's not afraid of doing that. And it's our responsibility as leaders to warn people that if they go that way, if they cast the lifeboat out, that there are going to be consequences. Colossians 1.28 says, Whom we preach... Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So who should we warn? Every man. Every man. Every man. We should be warning. We should be warning one another. We should be coming alongside our peers, our brethren, those that we love, even our elders and say, Hey, I fear that if you go this way, that it is a faithless and fearful act. And there will be consequences for that. It's a sober work, but Paul, as our example, as our end sample, Paul is known for making warnings just like this all the time. He wasn't afraid to tell people that he loved, that they were erring in their thought life and in their behavior. He wasn't afraid to do that. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, if you guys remember this, Paul reminds those Ephesian leaders that when he was in Ephesus, that he was warning them night and day, warning them against false teachers constantly. That, it, that his primary responsibility even was to, ro- to warn them against the, the wickedness of their culture and the false teachers that surrounded them. And he said, he was telling them, look, you need to do the same. That's what I did, and that's what you should do, is to warn Acts 20, 29 says, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you. Like he, He's saying, like, look, in the void of my leadership, I know that there are going to be false teachers that sneak their way in here, and they're going to try to, to, to draw men away from the teachings that God has given them. Not sparing the flock. Also of, uh, also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things. And in Ephesians 4:14, 4, Paul uses the term winds of doctrine. And I think that's appropriate for our sermon today, isn't it? These every winds of doctrine, these, these false teachings, these perverse teachings are going to come into the body, and we ought to warn one another of false teaching. To draw away, why, why, why? Why does Satan want to do this? And that's to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul was not afraid to warn. Similarly, in the church in Thessalonica, he warned the people not to be faithless. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Okay, he's talking about spiritual authority. And we admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient towards all men. So we ought to warn the unruly. When people get unruly, when they get outside of the obedience of the Lord, when they go run counter to the things that are taught in the Bible, we ought to warn them. We've got to do that. We have a calling on our lives, and it is to obey God in this way, and that is to warn one another when we go the wrong way. And why is that? Why is this so significant? Why is this so important? I mean, I'll just put it this way. Maybe you guys are thinking, maybe Brand is just overblowing this warning thing. As a pastor of this ministry, I have to tell you that personally in my own ministry life, I find myself warning people on a daily basis. It is, it is I have to be honest with you, it's one of the greatest burdens of my ministry. I can't tell you that I always enjoy that. It's difficult and it's often very tearful, particularly when people say to my face, Well, I'm not interested in doing that. Warning is a critical part of of, of leadership ministry role, and we have to grow familiar with it. Why? Because one person's sin is dangerous enough. Okay, it's dangerous for their own life because if one person goes away, there's obviously going to be consequences for their personal life. God is going to chastise them, He is going to find them. Uh, and, and judge them, and there will be justice for disobedience. There just always is. My son doesn't get to do anything he wants. When my son talks rude to my wife, trust me, there are, there are consequences for those actions. He doesn't get to do that. There are things that I won't permit, and there are things that God won't permit in your life too. And the truth is there are consequences for every individual. But listen to me. The consequences, just go, they go beyond just the individual level. They go beyond that. The sin in one person's life absolutely affects the whole. It impacts every single person. It doesn't just stop with you. It has consequences for all of us. That's how it works. We are the body of Christ. And when one member suffers, when one member sins, when one member turns away, it's as though a part of a human body begins to lose its own function. We are all critical to this work, and if you choose to go your own way, it affects every single one of us, and there are consequences for all of us. And that's why we ought to warn. And in our story, it's just a handful of people that are being disobedient. There's only just a handful of people we think, oh, well, they're going to face those consequences. They're going to set out in that lifeboat, and that lifeboat's going to wreck They can. not There's no way that it'll make its way. No, the truth is the promise, the promise of the story is that every one of them will suffer, every single one of them. So listen to me, we need leaders who can speak hard things. And because our relationships are built on love and care for one another, then they should be able to withstand sober words. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That lifeboat was like the kisses of an enemy. You know, we prefer kisses to wounds. But the truth is, when a faithful friend is willing to wound us and call us to something hard, that is far better, far better than any other desire or passion that we could be seeking after. Because it builds faith in us. To the church of Laodicea, Christ says the following in in Revelation 3.19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. That's a word for us. Growing leaders, listen to me. Warning is much better received. Listen. Warning is much better received when you've proven your love for other people. And so what I want to say to you, growing leaders, those of you who recognize that God has a calling on your life and that you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, listen to me. Your love for people will prove and establish the right to speak hard things and to give warnings to other people. Yes. See, it says the wounds of a friend. See, not, not, not just any wounds, Okay. Not the wounds of just someone in ministry with you. It's the wounds of a friend that are faithful. And you must be a friend to people if you're going to warn them. In other words, we're a family. And a family is not an institution. When your boss says a hard thing to you, that's hard to receive. But when a loving brother in the faith speaks something to you, it should be much easier to receive than that. No one wants to hear hard things, but it's better received from those you know that love you. This is the way Paul puts it in Colossians 4.14. He says, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though Listen, he points out the truth here that I'm trying to make clear. For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, ye have ye not many fathers for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel wherefore I beseech you be ye followers of me in other words I've proven to you my love I'm not just any instructor I'm not just any person I'm not just any Christian I am a father to you in the faith I am family to you and that's how I justify these warnings and so growing leader listen It's not good that you just know the truth and you can speak it. Establish the ability to speak truth to other people by showing them love and being their friend. Be a father, not an instructor. Be a mother. Be a mother and love. Our ministry is not perfect, but it is a ministry of people, and it's a ministry of people who will warn And it'll warn you against your faithlessness. So you just got to know now, if you're new to this ministry, I just want to tell you right up front that we are going to approach you at the level of your growth and development, and we will be gentle with you. But it does not mean that we will not warn you. And the further along you get in your faith, the more strong the warnings will get. That's what Kai is going to be about. Every one of us have to be willing to both warn and also receive warning. You've got to be able to receive it too. See, there's an, there's an example here in how they respond to Paul's warning. Look at how they respond to Paul's warning. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. So he warns them, and they're like, okay. Okay, we hear you, and we believe you. Now, they don't just walk away from the situation. They believe him so much that they destroy the lifeboat so that it's not even an option anymore. And I wonder if we're willing to receive warnings the same way. Ah, you know, it might be easy for you to give a warning, but sometimes it's much harder to receive one, isn't it? Do you receive warnings like these men? When the call to repent comes to your doorstep, are you willing to not only receive it, but to cut away and repent of any temptation that might lead you to disobey. See, those are two different things, right? Just saying, yeah, I agree, that's one thing, but it's a whole different thing to cut that lifeboat free. That's the right way to receive a warning. So when we're pummeled by the headwinds, we have to let faith prevail over fears, and we've got to warn in order to do that. So the first thing is warning. The next thing is nourishment. Leaders have to be willing to nourish and invest into other people who need it. When someone's going through a trial, when someone's going through difficulty, it's likely that they also need nourishment. It's not good enough for them just to receive the warning and to repent. From there, they need something to help establish strength, right? So let's read about it. Verse 33, And while the day was coming, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that ye have tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for you health, for there shall not be an hair fall from the head of any of you. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread. Okay, what's bread a picture of? The word of God. And gave thanks to God in presence of them all. So he leads them in worship, breaking bread, because it's health for them. And when he had broken it, the breaking of bread is a picture of what? Who is the word? Who is the living word? Okay, so the breaking of bread is a picture of what? The cross, the the breaking of of Christ's body for our sake. It's a picture of his grace and mercy towards us. And he took the bread and break it and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. So in the midst of these storms, these men were completely malnourished. And after 14 days, these men were not concerned about their appetites. Right? Isn't that crazy? They were so concerned with what was going on and they were so caught up in their flesh and they were so caught up in the fact that, have you ever met someone who's so depressed that they can't eat? And that's where these guys are at. They know that their life is doomed and so they haven't eaten and so they've retreated into themselves and they've, they've, they're not even concerned with food. They had no hope. So what makes the difference in a person who's starving? And a person who's hurting and a person who's going through trial, what makes the difference for them? And that's the nourishment of loving brothers and sisters. So Paul, functioning in hope and in confidence, determined that it was his responsibility to encourage them to eat and to regain the energy that they so needed. You know, this reminds me of when, remember when Elijah was so depressed and so despairing that he wouldn't eat. And the angel of the Lord, Christ Jesus, came to him and fed him. Do you remember that? 1 Kings 19.7 says, And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. Isn't that true? Don't you know that the journey is too great for you? that it requires the nourishment of the Lord. And he arose and and did eat and drink and, and, and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And so here's our next key point. We must be prepared as leaders, as leaders in this ministry, to nourish others with God's word. Okay? Your advice, your opinion, your sentiment... Your psycho babble that you learned on some meme on Instagram, some comforting words from some secular mind, those things aren't good enough. Those things aren't good enough. No, it requires the Word of God. The Word is what weak people need. It is what enlightens them, it is what strengthens them. It alone will provide a change in outlook and perspective. Hebrews says that men are enlightened by the taste of the good word of God. I love that. That the the lives and the, the eyes of men are enlightened by the taste. It's not, there's like there is no metaphor here. Okay? It's the taste. This book has a taste, it has a flavor that enlightens. Like the honey that Jonathan found. Right? First Peter likens God's word to the nourishing of a baby with milk. Psalms 119.103 103 says, How sweet are the words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 34, 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Now, this is what Paul invests in them. He invests the bread. He he blesses them with devotion before the Lord. He blesses them with the promises of the Lord. And this is the very reason why we have Bible studies. Now, when I say Bible studies, okay, I don't mean, you know, your mama's Bible study at the mega church uh, where they're doing the Beth Moore thing, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about community groups, I'm not talking about cell teams. Okay, I'm talking about Bible studies. We've taken the, the phrase, study the Bible, and we've turned it into a concept that revolves around fellowship and community. And when we say Bible study, what we mean is fellowship around God's word. And this is why this, the, the Bible study component of our ministry is absolutely critical to your discipleship, your nourishment, and your growth. It is critical to what we do. And so I want to, right now, I want to warn you, now, I want to call you to nourishment is what I want to do. If you are not yet in a Bible study and you're not yet getting established in that, in that work through fellowship and friendship around God's word, then you're missing out on what this ministry has for you. This, what I'm doing right now and what the worship team is doing, this is not sufficient. This will leave you the remainder of the six days of the week malnourished. What you need is the fellowship of believers around God's word. And why? Why do we do? Bible study is so critical. And the way that we construct Bible study is so that it has all the friendship and love and all that stuff. But it also centers around, God, around God's word that we might be all people subject to authority. There's accountability there. We're holding each other to truth. And not only that, it's a place of counsel. So when you struggle, when you're struggling and you face those wins... You have people that you can go to. Look, I am not God. I'm the pastor of this ministry, and I'm not a very good one. I'm weak, and I have a limited amount of time and energy, and I struggle in all the ways that you struggle. And you don't have easy access to me. I know that. I try my very best. I I want to touch base with people all the time, but it's difficult to get a hold of the pastor, and that's why I devote the majority of my life to training Bible study leaders so when you need truth and you need to be nourished and you need counsel, you've got someone that you can go to. And that's the way we do ministry. And I want to I call you to that. That if you know what you need is investment and you need nourishment, go find a Bible study. Go to kaya.live. And there's a link that says Bible study. Click in the navigation bar, Bible study, and you will find there something like 30 Bible studies that you could be a part of. This isn't like trying on shoes. You just pick one that's near you and you go and you you just go and you find out that what they have to offer there is not unique because of the people or the culture of the group. It's unique because they center their lives around this. That's what we need. We all need nourishment. And as leaders, you need to be ready and able. You need to know this book. You need to do D2. You need foundations two and three, and you need LFBI so that you can know this book, so you can get better and better at nourishing those of of the of the people that God has brought into your life. That's what you need. We have to be nourishers. Next, we need to be encouragers. We need to find ourselves encouraging. What were the effects of of, of Paul's ministry on these men's lives? The breaking of the bread. The nourishing of God's word. The fellowship. The prayer. What What was the result of that? Well, it was good cheer. Now it's funny to me, it wasn't good enough before. You know, Paul called them to good cheer twice. Twice. But there that wasn't good enough. They were still looking to escape. It wasn't good enough to just say, be of good cheer. It wasn't until the bread was broken that the cheer came. Verse 36, then uh, then were they all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. And we were in all in the ship, 203 score and 16 souls. See, this is how cheer comes. It comes in fellowship. Now, I want to point something out to you. If you study out being renewed in Scripture, the idea of renewal, the Bible will always teach you that it's the Word of God that renews us. And didn't it for these men? Right? It gave them the energy that they needed. It renewed them. Now, I want to point something else out to you. That when you study out refreshment in Scripture, refreshment comes by the fellowship of believers. Isn't that interesting? We need renewal and we need refreshment. We need encouragement. And that's going to come through this, our love, the work of people, the labor of one another in each other's lives, the cultivation, the husbandry of us investing in one another. So that leads us to our next key point. uh, Our key point number what? What are we on? Four. We must acknowledge that true fellowship that's centered around the Word of God, centered around the Bible. Right? That's what true fellowship is. It, It makes hearts glad. Now, just by show of hands, how many of you are glad that you have people that you can go to? Right? It brings gladness. It it brings good cheer, knowing that we have fellowship. And that fellowship is centered around God's word. Now, I want to point out something to you uh, here that I think is really important and and, and interesting. That there's a succession to how this plays out in in the story here. There's, there's something, you know, things unfold, and it goes like this. First, they take the meat, right? They eat the food. They break the bread. They pray. The next thing is that their hearts are lightened. They're of good cheer. That's the next thing. That's the byproduct. But the third part is <clears throat> they suddenly become aware of how many people are on the ship. Isn't that funny? They suddenly discover, oh, there's 276 what? Is it, what's the word for people here? Souls. When they're enlightened by God's word, when they're full of good cheer, when they've been nourished, suddenly they have the capacity to take their eyes off themselves and begin to discover that God cares about souls. So much so that they know every single person on that boat, 276 of us, and God wants to spare every one of them. And so we better get about that work. See, when we've been enlightened by, when we've been warned to repentance and we turn away from the works of our flesh and then we turn to the nourishment of God's word and it fills us and it lightens us and it gives us good cheer, suddenly our perspective changes and we begin to see things the way God does. That's what we need in our lives and that leads us to the next thing is that Paul led them to endurance and obedience. So their energy is restored and these men, they suddenly are aware of all the souls on the ship. And what's the next thing that they do? They choose to labor and endure the wind. Now, I want to point out to you that before, they let the wind just do what it wanted to do, right? Remember, the wind drove them. They, they pulled the sail down, right? They, they bore up the ship. They, they wrapped it up, and they, and they were afraid, and they just hunkered down, and they let the wind drive them wherever it would take them. That was who they were before. But now that they've been nourished, and now that they're aware that their soul's at stake, everything changes in their behavior and the way that they act. And they're called to endure and obey. Verse 38, And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. They had everything they needed. And when it was day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore, into the which they were minded if it were possible, to thrust the ship, to drive the ship. And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea. Remember we talked about before, the sea is a picture of the ministry itself. Where where do the fish live? In the sea. And what are we called to be? Fishermen. Ministry itself is the sea. And so they commit themselves unto the sea, and they loose the rudder bands and hoist up the main sail. They're ready to sail again. And they made toward shore. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable. But the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. So they see the inlet, they drive the, shore, the, 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 uh, the boat ashore, and they've done all this labor and all this work in the faith and the power and the enlightenment and the nourishment of God's word. And because souls are worth it, they get to work. And that leads us to the next key point. When we cultivate faith in people, we cultivate faithful laborers. Sorry, I need a drink of water. See, I lost my voice last week. We don't want that to happen again. <clears throat> when we cultivate faith in people, we cultivate faithful laborers. Now, I want you to understand what that means. When we are investing the nourishment of God's word, when we're discipling people, when we're giving them everything that God has given us and we're, in, we're sharing life in that way, it will call people to faith and it will call them to faithful work. James 2.26 says, for as the, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. God has called every believer to a work and leaders ought to call people to leadership. That's what we should be doing. As a leader in ministry, you should be calling people up into the void of leadership. Every hand on the plow. Every hand, every shipman's hand to an oar. It's time to paddle. It's time to get to work. And as leaders, we must recognize that we have a responsibility to call other people to labor in the mission, to see souls saved, to see them raised up. And if we have a ministry that leads this way, then we will have a ministry that God can bless. And that leads us to the last thing, and that's this, that Paul led them to a place of favor and protection in the Lord. Verse 42, and the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim, should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land. Now listen to this, verse 44. And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship, and so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. And that leads us to this key point. When we all obey, we all reap the reward of obedience. Now see, as a pastor... As a a leader in ministry, the Bible is very clear that one day I will stand at the judgment seat, and I will give an account personally, not just of my own life, but how I pastored y'all, how I made that investment. And I will answer for any moment or any time that I faltered in my ability or faith to lead you. That's That's just a byproduct of being a pastor. That's what I've signed up for. But I want to point something out to you. That if you really study that out, that goes for anyone who leads. It's it's not just for me. It's actually for those of you who call yourselves leaders in this ministry too. And you are called to make an investment that acknowledges and recognizes that my judgment seat is not good if your judgment seat is not good it brings me no pleasure for the for the Lord to say to me well done good and faithful servant if he can't say it to you too And good leaders have that perspective and the safety and the reward and the goodness and the protection of God and the peace of God is only, is only optimally good, good at its furthest capacity. Only a blessing as far as it can go is if I know that I've got you there with me. And that's why it grieves me every time I see a person walk away from the Lord and turn to the world. It's grievous, it's burdensome. So let's not do it that way. Let's do it together. Let's all find our safety in Jesus Christ. Let's not leave any good, any soldier behind. Let's be like the Rangers. We won't leave anyone to the enemy. We've got got to all be called to something greater. When we began chapter 27, we had a group of men who wanted to go their own way, to take their own route They wanted to please their flesh. And we discovered that there were consequences for them, for those decisions. But here we find a group of men who found themselves safely ashore because they believed in the promises of God. I want to invite the worship team up. Okay, and as they're doing that, um, I I want to make the invitation this. Okay, listen to me. You know if you're in a place where you are full of fear and you're tempted to faithlessness. You know that, right? You know that. All you have to do is is analyze your heart. In fact, let's do that. Let's close our eyes and let's analyze our heart. And I want you to, I want you, as your eyes are closed, I want you to gaze into your heart and I want you to ask yourself the question: Am I tempted to despair? Are there things that I'm afraid of? And have I failed to put my faith in Jesus Christ for my circumstances? And as the Spirit reveals that to you, then that's a call for you to do something about that today. See, this is my opportunity to warn you and to say, the way that you're going is not good, it's not sufficient for the Lord. And this is an opportunity today. Today is a day that you can be right before the living God. And you should take advantage of this. And you should go to the Lord and you you should call out to him. And you should find your nourishment with him. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I ask that you would use your word and your spirit to do everything that it needs to do in us. And that you would call us right now to be faithful. And if that means grabbing someone to pray with or grabbing somebody to go meet in the lobby and go tuck, their, tuck themselves away to talk about what's going on in their lives, Lord, I pray that, they, that people would have the boldness and the faith to do that. That they wouldn't be afraid of being right with you and they wouldn't be afraid of exposing the areas of their life that are sinful and not right. Lord, I pray that you would bolster their faith and call them to repentance. Lord, I pray that we would have a faith-filled ministry, ministry full of leaders. And so, Lord, if there are any leaders today who recognize that they've been negligent in their responsibilities and that they too have have gone away of faithlessness, Lord, I pray that they would repent of that today and that they would acknowledge that they have a responsibility, not just to themselves and not just to you, but to the people that they are called to lead And, and that they would repent and that they would come to a place of faith and that they would find their nourishment with you and that they'd be enlightened and that their perspective would be changed. God, do your perfect work in us right now. Amen. If you've got something that you need to deal with, if you've got an area of your life that you know that is surrounded and, and swallowed up by fear or faithlessness come forward, there's going to be counselors up here to meet with you. Let's worship. Let's be right before the living God. Amen? We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.liv.com.